What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... The odds are two in three will end up with a negotiation starting at some point in the next six to 12 months. Admiral James DeVritus with a military appraisal of Russia's position seven months and counting into its war on Ukraine. This as Vladimir Putin taunts Kyiv and its allies with implicit threats of nuclear escalation and orders the mobilization of as many as 300,000 reservists, also referendums in four regions. First, though, to the FOMC decision in the United States. Another 75 basis points in Fed funds rate increases and more hawkish talk on inflation. Longer-term deflation expectations appear to remain well-anchored. But that is not grounds for complacency. The longer the current bout of high inflation continues, the greater the chance that expectations of higher inflation will become entrenched. Bloomberg Opinion's Jonathan Levin and John Authors join me. We've written down a plausible path and it will be enough. I'm quoting there directly from Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Jonathan Levin, this plausible path, very different from what we saw in the last dot plot. Does it look plausible to you? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's sort of interesting to observe is that, you know, Jay Powell is sort of insinuating that this is it. This is plausibility we have for you now. But the pace of the revisions has not slowed down at all. If you just go back in history a little bit, right, in December, the 2023 Fed funds rate was expected to be at 1.6. March, we bumped it up to 2.8. June, we bumped it up to 3.8. September, we bumped it up to 4.6. As sort of hawkish takeaway from all of this from the trajectory itself might be the trajectory of the revisions is going to have to probably slow down a little bit until it really feels like we're at the top. Diane Swong pointing out that this is the highest Fed funds rate since Bear Stearns collapsed in March 2008, which is kind of hard to believe. But at the same time, it's hmm. not in some ways, John. It's also the fifth rate hike this year. What's been what's going on? Well, I, I think as you bring in Bear Stearns, I think there is a fairly real sense that this is our final at long, 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 long last exit from the conditions of the global financial crisis, i.e. that something like what is happening now is what I thought was going to happen sometime around about 2009, 2010. But it's amazing how long logic takes to work itself out in the real world. So it's obvious there's been a risk that eventually you'll see rates go up and inflation return. And amazingly, it took over a decade before it happened. But now you do see somehow or other, we are going to finally get back to something that's more like the world from before the crisis than from after it. And if you want a comparison, I mean, at this point, I just wonder, in 1929, you have a crisis after some pretty bad monetary policy and then various monetary mistakes along the way, you bump along and you only finally jolt out of that crisis after there's been a truly horrible external shock. Mm. World War II and the pandemic. Just wonder whether in another generation's time they'll see the 
the decade we've just lived through in the 30s as being very similar in financial terms. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because, down. Jonathan Levin, do you agree with me that Fed Chair Powell almost gave a little mini economics lecture at one point during the news conference answering a question when he talked about the fact that if we can get things back to the 2% inflation target, that we could have business cycles that are 10 years long at least, because that's what we've been having. You know, Fed Chair Powell is playing a little bit of a politician here because he's in a very difficult place. The fact of the matter is, uh, if, if you just look at the rather conservative estimates for where employment is going to have to be, you know, this economy is going to have to erase more than a million jobs, right? That's very difficult to go out and tell the American people. So at the same time, he's trying to justify this sort of barbaric process <laughs> and say, you know, look, this is, this is ugly. This is like surgery. Right, we need to go out and do damage to the economy in order to make it better in the long term. And this is the sort of justification that the economic orthodoxy keeps coming back to. This may be bad. Some people may have a really tough run of it. But in the long run, you can't have sustainable business cycles unless you get volatile prices under control. And just for point of comparison, he could have gone the full Andrew Bailey because the last Bank of England meeting was about as spectacularly negative as you could possibly imagine a central banker would ever be. The word Armageddon was in there somewhere. Yeah, Britain was going to go into recession any day now and stay there for the whole of next year. And, I mean, he also made, which is an awful political faux pas, he urged people not to ask for more money, Mm. which doesn't go well with the new Chancellor saying that he's not going to put any limits on bankers' bonuses anymore. But anyway, there was that possibility of really just saying, I'm sorry, guys, call a spade a spade. This is going to hurt far better some pain now than worse pain later. Well, Chair Powell didn't do that, Jonathan. And even though the market came away with the idea that this was a very hawkish 75 basis point hike, he also wouldn't go so far as to say, look, we are going to have millions more unemployed. We need to have millions more unemployed. He said that the costs, let me get the exact quote. If our projections are close to right, you will see that the costs in unemployment are meaningful. That's not millions of jobs lost, but in effect, that's what it means. Exactly. I mean, you know, my takeaway is that if you took the June summary of economic projections, a lot of people would have said that the Fed was in fantasy land. Here, what the Fed is doing is it's bumping itself in a pessimistic direction, and it now finds itself probably somewhere between Wall Street and Larry Summers, uh, Olivier Blanchard. But I got to say, they're still an awfully lot closer to Wall Street than they are to the Summers take, which is essentially that you know, just to get to neutral unemployment rate in this atmosphere, you have to be at about 5%. And quite possibly, in order to rein in this inflation, they would say you might have to go to 6 or 7% unemployment. And that definitely implies some sort of meaningful recession. So how do we see markets adjust, John Authors? We saw the two-year yield mm. topping 4%, but the 10-year rate declined. Now, does that signal that the market is anticipating the Fed will get spooked at some point and freeze increases? Or what exactly is that signal? It is rather strong. I mean, the other thing is the 30-year yield declined more. So apparently the 10, 30, the very abstruse part of the yield curve is now inverted. Um, that, I have to admit, was one part of what went on that I find initially quite difficult to explain. I think you probably can, in terms of just prior expectations, I think the bond market is braced for something was more realistic coming in. And I think the hawkishness 
from Powell helped convince people that that you'll have not a pivot per se, but enough of an aggressive Fed to squelch the economy for quite a while and thereby justify lower, longer-term yields. Jonathan Levin, what was your interpretation of the moves in the yield curve? Yeah, I, I got to agree with John. Very difficult to, to interpret. But I will make one sort of separate observation, which is that Powell has really gotten rather good, at least comparatively speaking, at managing financial conditions. And I thought that, you know, what, one of the better moments, we all knew that he became much more self-aware going into Jackson Hole, and he knew that he needed to keep interest rates up, probably needed to keep risk assets down. And he seems to have remembered these lessons. There was this great moment when Powell was like, yeah, you know, I probably shouldn't answer your second question because, he, he, you know, he has become very self-conscious about the fact that these doggone markets seem to rally every time he goes before the microphone at one of these events. Yes. Uh, it's one of the things I've been you know, putting together charts for what I'm going to try writing about. It is extraordinary how expectations in Fed funds futures got almost all the way up to 4% for the end of this year after the May CPI print, which Mm. came out in June and which was a real, real shocker. And then the market basically spent the entire summer convincing itself that rates wouldn't have to go up that much. So the estimates for where rates will be only, you know, four months from now have risen by more than a full percentage point since the last FOMC. Which is bizarre. There's not been that big a change in uh, conditions. Ch- yes, or... and, and, and there's not been that obvious a change in in messaging. Okay, Jackson Hole arguably hawked things up a bit, but I don't think it was so much more hawkish than my interpretation of what Powell said after the previous FOMC. So the, the, there is a hope springs eternal might well be something we should all bear in mind when covering uh, covering markets. Well, speaking of questions, there was, as there always is, the question of, you know, monetary policy operates on a lag. And I think our own Michael McKee asked, you know, how will you know or will you even know if you've gone too far? And Jonathan, the Fed chair did acknowledge, as is obvious, that monetary policy and the moves have been impacting some parts of the economy, interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, but it's hard to know at what point it will impact the broader economy and by how much and so on. Do they have any kind of sense of when that will happen or are they just a little blind still? The short answer is they don't know. I, I, I mean, as you say, they have great, not great, they have reasonable visibility into something like the housing market. But, you know, the way that the economy is constantly evolving, and given the fact that they haven't been in a fight like this for decades, they really have no idea how it's going to affect and with what kind of lag it's going to affect, say, consumer segments of the economy, which as we know is extraordinarily important in the United States. Mm. So, you know, the bottom line is I think they're going off of rules of thumb. Our uh, in-house economist, Adewong, likes to say that the lag is something like 12 to 18 months. That's what I tend to go by. And I think they're going off of rules of thumb that are no better than the ones we have at our disposal. Well, according to the new SCP, headline inflation won't return to the Fed's price target of 2% until 2025. I mean, we're still in 2022. Let's be clear. Yes. (laughs) I, I mean, that seems feasible to me. And what's quite intriguing also, though, about the dots compared to previous years is if you look at the estimates for where rates are going to be at the end of 24 and 25, 
they look more like a random scatter plot or a Rorschach test than mm. anything. I think there was no more than four governors agreed on any one rate Correct. for the end of uh, 2024. And the spread was something like one and a half, one and three quarters percentage points. And 2025, similarly. You know. It's kind of all over the place, right, yes. Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And when you're talking about long-term inflation objectives, you're still in the throes of this debate about between 2 and 3%, how much does it actually matter? I tend to be in the camp that as far as the average American, it doesn't matter so much. It only sort of matters because the Fed has gone out and made this promise, and now it sort of has to keep it, lest it lose its credibility for the next inflation fight. Well, I'm going to get your thoughts on the next increase, 75 basis points and then 50, Jonathan. Yeah, it seems reasonable. Um, at this point, it almost doesn't feel like what happens at the next couple of meetings is that consequential. Mm-hmm. It's really just all about where are we going and probably even more importantly, how long are we going to stay there? Yeah, it's just about getting yeah. it up there, isn't it, John? Yeah, I think the path for the next few months for policy is very straightforward, barring Either you know, a major geopolitical shock, we've got a picture of Volodymyr Zelensky on the TV screens around us at the moment, or a financial crisis, some really major financial accident, which really doesn't look all that likely still. I think it's a question of we know roughly what the route is for the next few months, and then so much is about everybody sort of sitting back very tensely in the breach position or whatever uh, to see exactly how fast inflation does come under control, how what happens to the labour market. And very many number of very intelligent, very decent people have been arguing in good faith in all kinds of directions over that. Mm. We will all learn. Nobody knows which way that's going to go. But ultimately, the course is set and we just need to see what actually happens to the economy. You know, it's really all over the place. I mean, I noted that, you know, two of the most popular ETFs were, were like uh, one to three month treasury bills and the ProShares QQQ, which offers a three times leveraged play on the NASDAQ 100. So, you know, with all the cross currents in this market, I don't expect there to be any resolution between is this a massive buying opportunity for risk or is this the moment to run for cover? Liquidate everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a barbell strategy. That, that really is quite something. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors and Jonathan Levin there. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Russia's war in Ukraine had some turning points this week, with Ukraine retrieving a swath of land previously held by Russian forces, and Vladimir Putin announcing reserve troop mobilization and referendums in territories of eastern Ukraine. I asked Admiral James Stavridis, Bloomberg opinion columnist and NATO's 16th Supreme Allied Commander, also former commander of US Southern Command, to join. Admiral, Yale historian Timothy Snyder often says that military history is not covered as much as it should be, so... 
we concentrate on things like strategy or somebody's thinking that they're paramount in conversations about war. So let's start there. What do we know right now about what shape Russia is in militarily? I'm talking hardware from tanks to drones, battlefield artillery, ammunition and so on. In terms of the systems they need to prosecute the war in Ukraine, they're in very bad shape. And that means uh, manpower, particularly trained soldiers. They've evidently lost around 80,000 killed or grievously wounded. They've lost thousands of tanks, thousands of armored personnel carriers. Their drone fleet has been destroyed. That's why they're seeking additional help from Iran. So the systems they need to conduct a ground war against a well-equipped high morale ground force like the Ukrainians are very low. Funny, it's important to remember there are other parts of the Russian military that are quite capable and remain so, Mm. notably their submarine force, their nuclear forces, their long-range bomber forces. None of those have been touched by the Ukrainians. But that forward ground element has been decremented, I'd say, at least 50%. And that's quite remarkable in six months of war. Are you suggesting that Russia could somehow change this theater into something different? I think Vladimir Putin today is looking at options to use other longer-range systems to attack Ukraine. And that could mean using long-range bombers to go after the electric grid or the water supplies. It could mean a massive cyber attack, something we have been watching for, but he has not yet chosen to undertake. It could be the use at the very dark end of the spectrum of a chemical weapon, which he would no doubt try and false flag, attribute it to the United States or Ukraine. But because his ground forces have been so decremented and have failed him, he's looking at other options. From a military perspective, how easy would it be for him to mobilize any of those sorts of efforts? Would it just be a question of giving the order? It would be. And this is the tragedy of the situation in which the Ukrainians find themselves, which is that effectively they have a massive sanctuary state. That would be Russia, where they are proscribed from attacking Russia. They can't reach into Russia and attack those sites because they don't want to escalate the war and and drag NATO into it. So the Ukrainians have a very tough situation in that Russia can operate from sanctuary bases and strike into Ukraine. What would Vladimir Putin have to take into account international relations-wise in order to escalate? He's obviously had conversations with President Xi recently. You mentioned Iran. He's maybe not getting the support that he would like from both of those countries. Would that matter to him? Increasingly, it is mattering to him. And very recently, of course, in Uzbekistan, the meeting of the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, um, the meetings that he had there were tepid at best in terms of the level of support from Russia, Iran, in India, frankly. Modi in public really chastised Putin. It's good to see So he's got a weak international flank there. And on the other side, the United States, NATO, Japan, the Pacific democracies are very unified at this point. So 
Putin has not only the military problems we just spoke about and not only the economic problems, he's got a significant diplomatic shortfall as well. So it seems what you're saying is that a ground war offensive, to continue that, would be quite difficult for President Putin, but he does have other options. At the same time, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Leonid Bershitsky talks about Russian apathy, and we're seeing internal dissent now as well from many dozens of municipal leaders. Will that play a part in Putin's decision? So far... It will not. He still maintains brutal control over the levers of power. It seems every week I hear about a a new Russian oligarch who mysteriously falls out a window of a sixth floor Mm -hmm. hospital or suddenly goes overboard from his yacht. But those cracks are widening. And it's not just the oligarchs, Bonnie. It's also on his right. And there is a right of Putin in Russia, a hard right, that's saying, Mr. Putin, take the gloves off. And they're sort of advocating for all the kind of escalations you and I just talked about. And then finally, a woman named Ala Pugasheva, who has been described to me as kind of a combination of Britney Spears and Taylor Swift, one of the most popular Russian pop music stars, has just come out against the war. There are cracks emerging, and Putin is going to have to deal with that as well. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We know Ukraine took back as much as 10% of the territory that Russia had seized. It was seen as a major win for Ukraine. But given everything you've just said, can we actually say that Russia is losing the war? Is that something that could change very quickly? I think the Ukrainians conducted a very smart, surprise, almost attack, a blitzkrieg-like. And they've taken 3,500 square miles back. Putin's forces stumbled out of those territories. But I think your fundamental point is the right one, which is, yeah, it's too soon to say who's winning, who's losing. At the moment, the momentum has shifted, and it is clearly on the side of the Ukrainians. But it's going to get harder because Putin's forces are compressing back into smaller territorial areas that they've held since 2014. His on the defense is a better military position. You have to have three times as many troops to overcome strong defensive positions. All of that, I think, is going to make it harder in the months ahead for Ukraine to replicate the rather sweeping character of what they've been able to accomplish. We talked a little bit about what Russia has at its disposal militarily. What does Ukraine have and need militarily from hardware to all of the other types of artillery that you spoke about? They're very well supplied at this point, but I'll give you three things that I think are on President Zelensky's wish list. One, and at the top of that list, is a long-range, surface-to-surface, highly accurate missile called ATACMS. It's an acronym. And ATACMS is like HIMARS, which everyone has learned what a HIMARS is. Mm -hmm. HIMARS has a range of about 50 miles. ATACM is HIMARS on steroids. It goes 200 miles. So it would allow the Ukrainians to reach 
even deeper behind the front lines of Russia and disrupt their logistics, their command and control. That's way up his list. Number two, President Zelensky would like fighter aircraft. We ideally love F-16s from the United States. He'd welcome MiG-29s from Poland. He needs more fighter aircraft. And number three, he would still like additional seagoing cruise missiles to take the fight to the Black Sea Fleet. Beyond those three systems, and those are big, important systems, but everything else has been put in the hands of the Ukrainians, and they're putting it to good use. Would everything you just mentioned be enough to counter if Russia were to mobilize its submarine fleet, for example, as you mentioned earlier? I think that what Putin's next big challenge is, and you mentioned the word, it's mobilization. He is going to have to mobilize troops. That's his biggest shortfall at this point. And obviously, you can't build troops in a factory. You have to mobilize them, draft them, conscript them, give them uniforms, train them, put them into the fight. That's when your base at home really starts to dislike what's happening, just like occurred for the United States during the war in Vietnam. What brought down the United States' participation in that war in many ways was the unpopularity of the draft. Putin knows that. That's a big challenge for him coming up. Let's move to a different theatre, though. I'm hesitant to use the word theatre because the activities may not meet the criteria for that word. And obviously, I'm talking about China and Taiwan. It was quite striking to hear it spelled out by the president on CBS's 60 Minutes that U.S. troops would be involved. So physical troops involved. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. Is that a departure, Admiral? It was read by some as a departure, but as has happened once or twice over the last year, President Biden makes a fairly general statement like that. And then the next day, the White House comes out and says there has been no change in U.S. policy. So U.S. policy, Bonnie, as you know, is strategic ambiguity, meaning we're not going to define whether or not we're going to be involved militarily if China decides to invade Taiwan. That's been our policy for over 50 years. That hasn't changed. I think the problem is many commentators and analysts look at this as an on and off switch. Either we're going to fight or we're not going to fight. Mm. It's more a rheostat, which is the dimmer that you have in your dining room to bring the lights up or Mm -hmm. down. And that rheostat, I think what the president was signaling is that rheostat is ramping up, meaning we're going to provide more advanced equipment, more training, more engagements, more diplomatic visits. He's signaling Beijing that the United States is going to be involved. I don't think he's trying to define exactly what our involvement will be. So any active military operation would be something like training. It wouldn't actually be fighting. It could be, or it might be involved in actual fighting. And that's precisely what we're trying to convey to Beijing is that ambiguity because it complicates Chinese planning. In other words, if China knew that we were not going to be involved in fighting at all, that might change their calculus and make it more aggressive if they have to consider whether we would or wouldn't step into combat roles That complicates their thinking. That creates deterrence. Hopefully that avoids a conflict. 
Admiral, you mentioned, or at least I know that you have some ideas about who's to blame for growing nuclear arsenals. Perhaps this is a good time to elaborate a little bit on that thinking. Nuclear arsenals are, in fact, growing globally, and that concerns me a lot. Unfortunately, all of the instability in the world creates incentives for nations that are not nuclear-armed to think about. So a prime example would be Iran, which doesn't have a nuclear weapon, as far as we know right now, but is certainly very close to stepping across that threshold. If they do so, the Saudis will probably think very strongly about stepping across that threshold. Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons. I think over time that causes both Japan and South Korea to think about stepping over that threshold. The point is instability in the global system undermines nations' confidence in not crossing that nuclear line. That worries me a lot in today's environment. How proximate would a nuclear option be for somebody like Vladimir Putin, particularly if he thinks that he's going to quote-unquote lose, which just isn't an option for him? Yeah, this is in the category of we want to avoid, I think, backing Vladimir Putin into a corner. We need to keep open the lines of communication. We need to be open to negotiation. We need to encourage our Ukrainian partners to be open to negotiation as distasteful as that will be to them in the face of, for example, the horrible human rights violations we've seen by Russian troops. Mm. All of that makes this hard. But compared to stumbling into a nuclear conflict, we need to keep those lines of communication open. Would Putin use a nuke, Bonnie? I don't think so. I think he would perhaps use a chemical weapon, a weapon of mass destruction. But even Putin... I don't think, wants to go down in history as someone who's used a nuclear weapon, particularly in a war of choice like he's engaged in. I think it's unlikely, ultimately. Admiral, this, hope so. this conflict has been going on for seven months now. As you watch and analyse and get updates day to day, how long do you believe this advance and retreat could carry on for before there's some kind of end point or beginning point for negotiations or something like that? I think the beginning point for negotiations is probably at least six months away, but I don't think it's years away. And the reason is because Putin is running out of resources, as we just discussed. And over on the Ukrainian side, over time, the West will become less forthcoming with all of the assistance and all of the cost. There'll be big forces at work that will move the Russians and the Ukrainians towards some kind of negotiation. You saw that, I think, in Uzbekistan in the messages that Putin was receiving, both from President Xi and from Modi of India. There'll be pressure on both sides to get to a negotiation. I think it's probably minimum six months away, and how long that negotiation might take could be a while. But in my view, the odds are two in three will end up with a negotiation starting at some point in the next six to 12 months. And finally, Admiral, when the world's focus is on one theatre, one area or another, obviously markets want to find out if if there's something that's going to jump out of them out of the blue, right? So are there any other areas of the world that we are now not focusing on that you're perhaps worried about? I'll give you two. One is Iran in the Middle East. It appears increasingly unlikely that 
the Iranians and or the West are willing to re-enter the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. If Iran walks away from that deal, look for the Iranians to begin to push up the amplitude of their activities, potentially going after the Saudis, potentially continuing their support in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Syria. Look for more instability in the Middle East. We haven't really been thinking much about the Middle East. We've been focused on Ukraine and Russia and China, Taiwan. Watch for the Middle East. And the second thing is not a place. It's cyber and cyber security. I think if Putin continues to fail militarily in a conventional battlefield, he may move towards cyber. And that could lead to major cyber disruptions, certainly in Ukraine, but perhaps in Western Europe and the United States as well. Admiral James Stavridis. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're also, by the way, available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred platform. We're produced by Eric Mollo. And you can reach us on Twitter at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.